Am I on? There I am. I'll, all right, I'll be the third or fourth to say it. Happy Father's Day. Dads, I have a gift for you today. We're ahead of schedule. You're going to get out early. Every man loves a shorter message and they like to be able, it's just the way guys operate. It's like, is this thing going to be on time today? Right? I think we're going to. Unless the spirit moves me in other things. It's my day too, you know. It's Father's Day for me, so. It's been amazing together already this morning. And, uh, I'm just, uh, I, I just want to mention to you, let you know, if you're newer to faith, if you haven't been to our church before or maybe not for very long, I just want to let you know, uh, kind of what we do here. We teach through the Bible. Doesn't mean we started at the very beginning and we're going all the way to the end, but we take individual books of the Bible. These are basically what we would almost refer to in a regular book, like chapters and stuff, but these various books, writings, letters, and that sort of thing. And we take one of those in isolation and work our way through that book. And um, we get the bigger context of what uh, the Lord was doing amongst the people of the time that the book was written. We have a greater appreciation for the timelessness of the message as we think about sort of the historical context. But also we do our best to bring that into relevance for us today. And so what that does for us, not only does it keep things in good context, but it keeps the teaching in balance so that I'm not up here just saying, oh, I wonder what I care about this week. I'm going to go and tell everybody that. This kind of keeps us on a path and a track, and it keeps us submitted to what the Lord would have us all to hear at the same time, so we're not blowing around by like every topic that is important at the moment. So with that, we are finding ourselves in the book of Ephesians. It's a New Testament letter. It's a tiny little six-chapter book, and uh, I can't tell you where it is in your Bible. If you have your Bible, we all have different page numbers and things, but uh, just look towards the, as the letters get smaller and smaller, Ephesians will be sandwiched in there. So it's after the Gospels, a little bit after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, but in that context, what we've been seeing is that Paul is aiming at showing us that we have a great treasure in Christ. And he's been taking his time through this first chapter that we've been into, open the, the lid of that treasure chest and say, look inside. There's some amazing things in there. And we talked about the fact that for a, a long-winded, um, you know, run-on sentence, verses 3 through 14, he's just extolling the praises of God and, and, and just proclaiming the magnificence of this treasure that we have in Christ. Now, as I'm thinking about it this week, and we're staying in that same thought process as we had last week, you know, I run into a lot of need in doing what I do for a living. I, I meet and talk with people who are really itching or aching for something in their life to be solved, for something in their life to go in a different direction. And so inevitably you kind of get that longing question of, tell me this is going to be okay. And, and just by way of human experience, how many times do we run into the situations in our, our friends or our family's lives where we're like, if I could fix this one thing for you, I absolutely would, right? If I, if I had the genie lamp where I, 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 one of the wishes I gave would be to fix whatever is going on in your life, I would gladly do it. And we run into that circumstance and just feeling powerless, we often say, well, I'll pray for you. And that's a bit of a, of a well-intentioned but 
but if I'm if I'm being honest, I'm, I hope this is okay that I'm I'm being transparent with you. Sometimes we say that because there's an intellectual knowledge that God's in charge, He's on the throne. We say that He's sovereign, but it's usually our last resort from a sense of helplessness. What else can I do? I can't fix it. I can't put it back together. I'm going to pray. And then in our prayers, we mean it. But there's this kind of like hanging on to a cliff, just going, Lord, if you could just come through for this person. And I think, and I don't have an answer to that necessarily, other than the fact that I think that's a part of us still being on this side of glory, being human beings trying to operate in what we know to be a spiritual world. The scriptures tell us and and will tell us as we get further into Ephesians that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and all the things that we can't see. So if I were to ask you, if, if, if somebody, what are, what are the needs of the people that you know that if you could just touch and heal it, figure it out, fix it, mend it, what would that be? How would you go about doing that? What wish would you use if someone gave you the genie lamp? Paul is writing this section of our scripture addressing that kind of situation. It's typical in our human response to base our needs on what we feel the most or our priorities, I should say, follow what we feel we need the most in the moment. We go through various seasons of our life and some of those seasons have greater needs than others. My wife was just asked to um, speak at uh, the East Auburn uh, Church Women's Retreat uh, a month or so ago and that was the theme they gave her. They said, we just want you to talk to us about the seasons of life that women go through. And so she was thinking through that and wrestling through that, being someone who's been through seasons herself, though only just a few because she's still super young. Um, you know, but to think about how the stories of her life and the biblical principles that she's learned all along the way have ebbed and flowed and have moved through these seasons. And as we were talking about this, just thinking about how do we communicate this to people who are being, as we all are, being led around by the nose by whatever drama we're in at the moment. How, how, how is the steadiness of God's sovereignty, his control and his power seen, even though our seasons are doing this all through our lives? So Paul has been opening this treasure chest for us. And I think he wants to address this in a way that is surprising to me. It's not natural for me, and I suspect it's the same for some of you. Let's come to our text, and we'll read the paragraph beginning in verse 15 of Ephesians 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Let's take just a couple moments and continue our prayer thoughts that we've already had this morning before we go forward. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for bringing us to your word this morning. I thank you, Lord, for already teaching and training us through it in our time together. 
Thank you, Lord, for the rehearsal of your your crucifixion, your death on our behalf. And I thank you, Lord, for the great work that you've already provided for us and taken all the pressure off of us to provide it for ourselves. And so, Lord, as we come to your pages of Scripture this morning, we struggle because they were written thousands of years ago. And we have needs currently in this moment that we're living in. And so, Lord, we know by faith that your words from back then matter to us now. But sometimes, Lord, we struggle to connect the dots. So help us to do that this morning. Help us, Lord, to hear the voice of your spirits. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul is telling these people that he's been praying for them. And in all of Paul's prayers, we see some form of a model. We've been very blessed to see in Scripture a lot of models of prayer. And if you're ever struggling, I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. Even though you might feel a little bit kind of mechanical, a little bit uh, religious or something, it's okay to go to the prayers in Scripture and say, I've got nothing else but to copy what I'm seeing here. So whenever we hear these indications that there's a way to pray or there's things to pray for, we should say, well, that's a model that's been recorded and preserved for me. And Paul is praying that you and I will grow in our obsession with the blingy things in the treasure chest. He's praying that we will obsess over the the riches and the vastness of these resources that Jesus has put in this treasure chest for you and for me. And what we see, because it's a model of prayer, is that an obsession with these riches is going to call us, like Paul, to pray for the things that God is already doing, not just the things he hasn't quite done yet. It's okay to pray for those things too, but we so often model our prayers or practice our prayers off of the things that God hasn't accomplished yet. So would you please? God, could you just? And if you wouldn't mind, would you? Those kinds of things. Our anticipation is always for the things that he has yet to do. Paul is saying, I've been praying for the things that he's already accomplishing in your life. And his immediate reaction to hearing good things about the people, primarily in Ephesus, is to join them in these prayers of participation. He said, I've been hearing about your your faith and your love, and I've been praying for you ceaselessly because of those things going on in your life. He says, it's because of your faith. I'm hearing these great reports. You have this faith in specifically in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to, we have to pause on this just for a second because if we're reading this in our common cultural, um, uh, with our common cultural lenses right now, what we see when we say, uh, you have faith is you have belief for belief's sake. You're a positive person. You're a faithful person. You see the brighter side of things. But Paul is anchoring this a little bit deeper. It isn't just faith for faith's sake. He's not saying, I've I've heard about your positivity. You're generally upbeat people. You speak well to each other, those kinds of things. He says, no, you you have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. You have believed in the only one who can rescue you. This belief is is in Christ. And we can't quite appreciate the phrasing here because this has been part of our vernacular for a long time. We say, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? And it just rolls off our tongue. But to the hearer of Paul's day, that was a really bizarre kind of a mysterious statement because belief was a matter of fact. And it wasn't this kind of thing like a a relationship you enter into. You don't wrestle with it with how personal or committed can I get to this belief? It just is or it isn't. 
Christianity was the one that introduced this phrase even to a Greek culture that says, no, our belief is in a person. And that belief, we anticipate it to grow. We anticipate it to be experiential. We, ex- we anticipate it to be something that leads us further down the road. It isn't just a fact that we can't argue against. It's a commitment to. I am not, this is going to seem like it's way out of left field, but I am not an ice fisherman. Some of you are. And I just want you to know I don't share this confession with you so that you invite me to go. Please don't. You know, sometimes the pastor says something like, oh, but we can change his mind. Please don't. I, I've had people sell me on ice fishing before. They're like, no, it's amazing. You, you go in, you're in this hut, it kind of stays warm. You drink warm beverages, you eat food, you tell stories, you play cards, you do, and when the flag, what does it go up or down? It goes up, you've got a fish, right? I'm like, other than the flag, that sounds like being in my living room. Why do I need to go sit in a, I get it. I get it. It's a different location. It's, it's just for whatever reason isn't, hasn't been for me. Um, but ice in general, as a kid, you know, we would, I grew up in Maine and stuff. We'd skate on ponds and that kind of thing. But I was always pretty apprehensive of being on the ice. I still, to this day, I drive by at various, like it's just starting to get cold and I see people kind of testing the ice and do it. I'm like, you're crazy. What are you doing out there, you know? Or I can see water around the edges and people are out where they know it's safe. And I'm like, no, I can see ripples. It's not safe. I would be the type of person who would be like spreading my weight out and kind of crawling on all fours. If I heard anything crack, I would just like Jesus walk on water, run on water to get back to shore. It's not my thing. But some people, because of their experience, hey, we've just grown up doing this. It's what we do. We know the calendar. We've been kind of, you know, gauging the temperatures the way they've been lately and everything without a thought. It's like you just get on the ice. You set up. You drill holes in the ice. It's crazy, you know, but there's a confidence. It's like, no, this will be fine. Every once in a while, of course, we hear of accidents and danger and stuff. But for the most part, people operate quite safely in that regard. So if I were saying, well, I got to have more faith in that process and I just went out on the ice and sort of mustered up more faith and willed myself, would that actually add to the depth of the ice that I'm standing on? Of course not, right? See, my security isn't found in the amount of faith I exercise or muster up. No, it's found in the strength of the object that I'm trusting in. And while I'm doing this and spreading it out and being afraid of falling in, everyone's whipping by me with snowmobiles and they're driving their trucks on the ice and they're doing all these kinds of things. And, and, the same, and, and they're just as safe as I am, no matter how I feel about the situation. It's because they know what the truth is. They've done the testing. They've had the experience. So our question is, where is your faith right now? Do we think because we somehow aren't like gutting it out and just willing ourselves to believe that Jesus is who he is in his character, that he somehow is less than who he is? He is always going to be who he is. That's one of the theological truths that we know about God. Unchanging. How much you and I sweat it out and I just got to have more faith in Jesus and all that. There's a time and place for that for sure. But our perspective is somehow we make God stronger in our lives. He always is. He's always the right amount of depth of ice to keep us 
above the water. So then the question becomes, do we actually walk on the ice? If the depth of it doesn't change because it's based on his character, then are we actually stepping out on that ice? That's where our faith is exercised. I heard somebody explain it that faith is a decisive act of the will. That's our initial, our faith in Christ. I choose to trust in Jesus, but it's also a sustained attitude. I continue to trust in Jesus. I keep walking further out on the ice. I keep going back to do that activity every season or something. Why? Because I trust it will hold me. So Paul is hearing about the faith that these people have in Christ and it causes him to praise God. But he's also heard about their love. Now, you know, we're kind of a broken record here at faith that love is doing the best for the one loved. Another way of saying that would be that love is a commitment to act on behalf of somebody else ahead of our own well-being, ahead of our own preferences. It's willfully putting someone else ahead of you. That's what love looks like. And John tells us in 1 John 3, he says, by this we know love, that he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone who has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The reputation of a church's love, and this was a church's reputation that was getting to Paul. It was a church that he spent years with and hadn't been with them for a while. And he's writing this letter from prison. The reputation that was reaching his ears was, these guys have figured out how to love each other. So Paul's proud of them. He's excited about them. And this reputational love is kind of like a shockwave. If you and I don't get it right in here, then what they hear about out there is not, well, I think those people love each other. Why would they even think about us if we're not doing it right here? So the reputational shockwave goes out as we perfect this idea of loving one another, preferring one another, doing better for each other than we do even ourselves. So this idea of love becomes the church's reputational goal. And John just laid it out for us because it's pretty basic. You see your brother or sister in need and you provide for him. If you don't provide for him, then all you have is empty words. Instead of real love. And just as a side note here, I just want to call out that Paul even himself is demonstrating this great brotherly, perhaps even fatherly love for his spiritual children in Ephesus. By praying for them, this is a, a whole message, if you will, on prayer. And it's even in the act that he's praying for them, we see him demonstrating the same love. So we kind of get where they got it from. When you and I pray for each other, we're demonstrating love in so many intangible and tangible ways. We petition to God because we care enough to cry out on somebody else's behalf. That their trouble, their their um, opportunity, their celebration, any of those things is is worth my attention. That it would rise in priority in my life that I would even take time to pray to the Lord about it. Or what it communicates to other people, that same exact thing. You're worth my time. What can I pray for? What can I pray about for you? 
Or can I take some time and pray with you now? Can I drive over to your house? Can we stand in your living room and pray through this together? What are the things that would cause us to say, I'm going to take that extra measure and I'm going to do it through the language of prayer? And that kind of touches to the bigger point, the bigger bigger dilemma that we have that I brought at the outset is, if someone's suffering through real need, what do we bring to the table? What do we do to fix it? Doesn't that seem a little bit like, well, I got nothing else, so I'll pray for you. But prayer also shows that it's a distraction. It, it serves in our life as a distraction from ourselves. If I'm praying for your needs, guess how much time I'm not thinking about my own, my own problems, my own interests. Praying for other people, either through a list or through a common uh, habit or what you hear, what's going on in their life, just does that extra dose. It helps you out even just to get your eyes off yourself for a little bit longer. So Paul says, in obsession with the riches in this treasure chest, the bling that is supposed to be nice and distracting to us, will cause us to pray for the things that God is doing, not just the things that he hasn't yet done. But also an obsession with that is going to cause us to pray for the things that touch heaven, not just things that are contained on this earth. Prayer and the practice of it reminds us that there's something beyond what we see and what we feel, what we can smell, what we've experienced. That there's something else going on and it allows us to talk into that atmosphere, for that atmosphere to talk into our lives. So rather than looking at it from a standpoint of what would I give to people if they really needed something tangible, all I got is prayer. It's actually the thing that, that instead of what if I could solve all of somebody's problems on this earth, but I haven't touched anything that enters the heavenly realm. You see, Paul wasn't focused on the merely temporal things. He didn't have anywhere in his letters that we can find where he's just praying strictly for things like health and, and getting the bills paid and making sure that the, the church doesn't flood or any of those kinds of things. Like Paul's prayers seem... Very impractical. They seem very out of touch with what the needs of any reader would have been going through at the moment. He prays for these other things, these loftier things. But do we think that somehow Paul just doesn't know what the needs of the people are? Maybe he's this kind of guy who just stays in his study all the time, isn't amongst the needs of the people. No. Historically speaking, that wasn't Paul. He knew what was going on. And often he would address people in the church by name and he would tap into their life a little bit and through some of his greetings and salutations and things. No, Paul is getting to the most practical thing he can pray for. He says in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Well, that's great, Paul. I, I do want wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, but I also kind of would like my car to get fixed. <laughs> or I do want those things, but in addition, do you think God could just sprinkle a few grand my way and I could pay off that lingering bill? Paul is praying for the most urgent practical need that any of us have at any given time, which is a knowledge of God. 
Paul understands that peace flourishes in the heart or the person that makes knowing God the highest pursuit. When we are fixated with, I don't know how I'm going to pay that bill. I don't know how I'm going to solve that um, parenting issue. I don't know how I'm going to get my marriage back together. But all I know is that my ultimate pursuit is to know who God is, to chase him down more, to get more acquainted with who he is that peace comes into that person's life. And we've seen it over and over and over again. I suspect you've seen it. Maybe in your own life, but certainly in the life of other saints who are growing in the Lord. And they, they don't seem disconnected from their issue. They're not one of these, uh, how does the phrase go, we're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. You get this impression that everyone's doing this and then tripping off the sidewalk and things. They, they are focused on the things of God, but they are relating it. That's where wisdom comes in. Relating it to the practical issues of life. So Paul is praying that we would have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation by knowing him more. We don't know what the translation of spirit means. Our Bibles mostly will have a capital S referring to the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, other translations will keep that S lowercase and stuff. There's just some debate on whether or not it's talking about the Holy Spirit or if it's the atmosphere, the air of, or a kind of an, uh, uh, a vibe in your life to use our vernacular today of, of that, uh, wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. But, but ultimately He's praying that it arrives. And that wisdom, more than just being intelligent about things, actually has an intelligence that works for today, that is applied to those issues of life. And if you've seen that in times in your life or in the lives of other people, you see that godly wisdom colors every life experience. You see people learning how to handle the lows, which is mostly what we focus on, but also when the highs come. There's a wisdom too there about, it's sort of like an even keeledness, like it's never as bad as it feels and it's never as great as it seems. Why? Because my revelation is that God is eternal and that my life here on this earth is temporary. And so this life doesn't manage my highs and lows for me. It's the presence and the faithfulness of God that does. So he prays for revelation that we would gain insight or we'd gain discernment from the spirit, but not, not just like, wow, now I can play the lottery. Not that kind of insight. He likens it to towards divine truth that we would have that revelation about God. Do you find yourself sometimes asking God, Lord, give me a fresh revelation. Give me a fresh message from you. And he's like, I've got a lot of it right here. I want you to go back to this. I'll shine light on this just like these lights are doing. I will illumine this for you through the presence of my spirit. That's the revelation that God brings to our life. It doesn't mean that he never nudges you and tells you, hey, you should say this thing to that person. Hey, I want you to take this job or something like that. But those are areas of mystery that we often over-prioritize. That's how I know I'm walking with Jesus if he tells me all those things rather than I know I'm walking with Jesus because I'm getting to know him on the pages of the scripture. So that's what revelation refers to here. You see, this knowledge that Paul is praying for is, is a full knowledge. It's something that you gain through personal acquaintance, spending time with, hanging out with, studying. So Paul says, I'm praying that you'll know God even and yourself more. And of course, a little bit of a broken record, he says, knowing our treasure more. Let's go back into verses 18 and 19. 
having the eyes of your heart enlightened. No, it wasn't a mistake that we sang that this morning. Perceptive worship leader jumped on that. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? It's a wonderful poetic phrase he gives us there. The open the eyes of our heart. It's why it works so well in a song. Because it's this great artistic image of us gaining more insight because our hearts before Christ are saturated in darkness. And so God is unveiling to us. He's lifting those scales off our eyes to use a, an expression from the New Testament so that we begin to see things more clearly. And it's important that it's the eyes of our hearts and not just the eyes of our brain. Or something along those lines. We're always trying to gain more knowledge, right? The world will tell us that the answer to everything is more knowledge. And yet we have plenty of people still dying from lung cancer, no matter how much knowledge is printed on the side of a cigarette box, right? There's a will involved. There's a heart involved. There's an obedience or a desire too that has to be transformed and changed. And that's what the heart is, biblically speaking. It's more than emotion, It's actually the center of who you are. Emotions are certainly a part of it. Our intellect and our brain is certainly a part of it, but it also involves our will. It's where deep thought, it's where deep understanding lives. So when Jesus comes to rescue our hearts, to cleanse our hearts, he's getting all the way inside and fixing us there. And then what happens is like being able to see as the, as the darkness is, is lightened up and you're starting to make out shapes and those kinds of things. That's what happens in the development of the Christian life is that the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. In his book, An Anthropologist on Mars, neurologist Oliver Sacks ta- tells about Virgil, a man who had been blind from early childhood. When he was 50, Virgil underwent surgery and was given the gift of sight. But as he and Dr. Sachs found out, having the physical capacity for sight is not the same as seeing. Virgil's first experiences with sight were confusing. He was able to make out colors and movements, but arranging them into a coherent picture was more difficult. Over time, he learned to identify various objects, but his habits, his behaviors, were still those of a blind man. So Dr. Sachs concluded that one must die as a blind person to be born again as a seeing person. It's the interim, the limbo, that is so terrible. Paul knows the most urgent need that you and I have is to see with clarity the things that God is doing in the world around us, in the lives that we live, how he's transforming, how he's redeeming our hearts and he's cleaning us up from the inside out. So Paul says, I pray that you look into the treasure chest and you get that kind of perception that you can see what's going on. Specifically, he wants us to see three little blingy treasures, if you will, in the treasure chest. And we're going to list those here pretty quickly as we conclude. The first thing he wants us to see is the hope to which God has called us. Hope is, of course, a critical word, another one of those cultural words. If we don't define uh, clearly, then we're going to walk away with it thinking, okay, again, that's more positivity. It's more belief to believe, um, that kind of thing. But hope, biblically speaking, is not wishful thinking. It is confident expectation. 
I'm banking on it. I'm counting on it. It's like another accounting type term that Paul would be using here. It's something I can mark down in the ledger and I know it to be true. We use it as a wishful thinking. I hope this turns out. I hope this works out. New Testament scholar uh, D.A. Carson um, looks at it this way. He says the Greek uh, language for hope, it doesn't put a question mark on it, but an anticipation. Or I would say it doesn't put a question mark on it, but an exclamation. Hope or no, I hope this. I expect this. Confident expectation. Biblically, hope is the assurance of a reality that we haven't yet experienced. Now, I know we're going to be tempted to think, okay, so I got to muster up enough faith. The thing that I want to work out in my life, if I have a confident expectation, if I add to my strength of faith, then the ice will get thicker and God will come through for me. But Paul keeps us pretty anchored to the thing that God is accomplishing, the thing that we are to hope in, the thing that we can confidently assert this is taking place and it will happen. And he always points it back to the work of Christ. All that he's accomplished, all that he's done. So yes, we can walk around with this assurance of a reality that we haven't yet experienced because we know that that life, the real world that we can't all see is waiting for us. And we're confident about that. secondly, next blingy object is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And we've said a lot about this over the last couple of weeks. And so I won't revisit all of that. Excuse me. But instead, what we'll do is we'll concentrate on the fact that uh, there's a little bit of a change in the phrase here that underscores something that we said previously. Give me just a second. I know. Now I'm making everyone else do it. They're clearing their throats for me. (laughs) The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Remember we said, I think it was last week, I should have looked back, where we said that that uh, inheritance is one that we could rightly interpret both directions. What you and I get out of salvation, which is, of course, the forgiveness of our sins, the eternal life, the, the quality of life that we get even now, and, and certainly the promised home of heaven, that we get a lot out of this deal of salvation, right? We are literally rescued and saved. But even God himself gets something out of the deal, And scriptures walk us through understanding that he wanted us to, that we are his possession, a people for his own choosing. And I think this phrase underscores that the riches of his, of his glorious inheritance in the saints, his glorious inheritance would be you and me and all of those who sing his praises, who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and have become his own people. Bruce says it this way, he says, Paul prays that his readers will appreciate the value that God places on them. His plan to accomplish his eternal purposes through them as the first fruits of the reconciled universe of the future. In order, and this isn't just so that we walk away feeling good about ourselves, patting ourselves on the back saying, you know, that church did a lot for me to look in the mirror and be happy with me. No, it was for a reason, in order that their lives may be in keeping with the high calling and that they may accept in grateful humility 
the grace and glory thus lavished on them. Paul says, you see that? It's in the treasure chest, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And if we're being honest and we take some time to think about it, that does something for us. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe is what we see next. Immeasurable just being like, um, uh, you know, can't measure it, but, but, but it's, you're on one train of thought, the world that we know, and, and that world, that word means you've just jumped the tracks and you're in a completely different world that you can't comprehend. You have no value system for it. You have no way of comprehending exactly what you're even looking at. Paul says the immeasurable greatness of his power, power, power. He uses three different words as synonyms to just lay the layers on that that last treasure he wants us to see in this section is God's immeasurable great power. The first power word he he uses gives us our word dynamite, and it's speaking of his miraculous power. The second is uh, God's energy, which is why they translated that to be the word work. It's actually getting the job done. And then also that might is that is God's strength, but it's designed, it's directed, it's under control. It's a power that moves in a direction under the authority of God. And so Paul's just laying it on. He's like, I want you to see that, that power is there, that power is available, that power is, uh, in your treasure chest. And again, we would look at that if I don't fill in the blank of power towards what? If I just stopped our time together this morning and kept my promise to get you guys out early, which I'm trying, that you could walk away and fill in that blank yourself. I have the power of Jesus Christ in my treasure chest to do Whatever I think is my greatest need of the moment, whatever season I'm in. That's natural for us. If someone's not filling in the blank for us, we fill it in ourselves. And that's where we often get things wrong and a little bit mixed up. And that's why we sometimes have difficulty connecting the dots of the Christian life. But that's why we rely on the word of God to anchor these truths for us. He doesn't just give us this dynamite working energy under control so that we can call it down like a genie just so I can rub the lamp and then fix your issue. No, instead, it's so that we can see where it's going, where the riches are truly treasured in. And so verse 20, we're going to jump into just to cheat next week a little bit to see what Paul is aiming at here. The end of verse 19, according to the working of his great might, that's his power under control, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This power is all pointing towards, and it was demonstrated fully in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which you and I have been beneficiaries of, which you and I have been saved through. So this great power that's been exercised was for our salvation so that you and I could believe, so that that treasure is now in our account. It's already there. The great power was the explosion of work under God's control and purpose given to us to change us, as how Hughes says it, to change us from children of hell to children of God. And if nothing, dare I say, if nothing else in our life went right, 
or if we didn't experience that power in any other kind of tangible, forceful way, it would be enough. We don't really know that yet because we haven't gotten to the other side. We haven't experienced all that would threaten us if we weren't in Christ. But that is enough. And Paul is saying, that's the thing I want you to obsess about. That's the thing I want you to have confidence in, that that power is credited to your account. Why is he obsessing about things that aren't necessarily seeming that practical to us? The late newspaper publisher, William Randolph Hearst, collected art treasures from all around the world. It was his obsession. He had an agent that would go and find these rare artifacts for him or these collectible things, whatever caught his interest, whatever seemed to be of good value. And there was a, a there was an, an item or a collection of items, I can't remember which, that were of, of particular importance to him. And so he sent his agent around the world, please go find these. We don't know where they are. It will take you time. I will fund it, all that kind of stuff. The agent was gone for months. He comes back and he says, I found it. I finally located it. You're going to be happy to know. I've got exact location where it is. He goes, well, I can't wait anymore. Tell me where it is. He goes, it's in your warehouse. I located it in your treasure chest already. It is Paul's great concern as he writes this letter that God's people would be unaware of the vast treasure and resources they already have. And the practical impact that that treasure has in every day that we live. We're running around the world. We're searching for rare treasure this way and that way. We're finding value in other things. And and God's saying it's all right there in the box already. So Paul's prayers were for things that God was already providing in the lives of his saints. He was thankful for their faith in Christ, their love displayed to the saints. He certainly prayed for more of the same to be in their life, but he prayed ultimately that the saints would review the great wealth that they already possessed. And by reviewing the strength of our eternal bank accounts, we have greater hope while living in temporarily taxing times. As I was studying this passage this week, it just kind of occurred to me again, this is a model prayer. And I was like, uh, duh, maybe I should be praying about this for all of you. And asking the Lord to keep giving you greater knowledge in him. The Lord, give me greater knowledge in him. And so I was like, I don't have to do that alone. So I reached out to the elders and asked them if they would join me in that. And they're like, absolutely. So for the last week, we've just used this model, just been praying each day. Lord, give our people a greater awareness of the treasure they have, that they will grow in faith, in love, that they will experience the wisdom and revelation of who is God and what does he do in and for us. And that we would be satisfied in that, regardless of the way our circumstances go. And we can be there for each other, even when they don't go so well. Would you stand and let's pray about these things. Lord, I want to thank you, Father, for all that you do in our lives. And thank you for this wealth and this treasure that you've given to us in Christ, in the heavenlies. That even meets us where we live on this earth. So thank you, Lord, for your word and for the people who have delivered it today. Lord, I thank you, God, for our time in the Apostles' Creed. I thank you, Lord, for the incredible challenge that we receive from it. The opportunity to lift our voices up in song to you and to sing of our great God. Lord, I thank you for these people. I thank you for our dads and the incredible role that they play in our society and in our households. I pray, Lord, you'd bless them in ways they don't even imagine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.